welcome to One Size Does Not Fit All with Well Life Tribe. We're sponsored by Renourish. Renourish are delicious grab-and-go fresh soups in a pioneering, heatable, fully recyclable bottle. Renourish soups are plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free and packed with vitamins. Find them in all Waitrose stores. Welcome to the Well Life Tribe podcast, One Size Does Not Fit All, with me, Liberty, and as always, I'm joined by Kat. Hi, Kat. Hi, Liberty. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So, more change this week. Where are we? Week 12 of lockdown. Is it? I thought it was more 13. God. (laughs) Week 400. Whatever it is, there's been a little bit of a, a development today, hasn't there? So, haircuts. Are on the horizon. (laughs) The boys in my house need a haircut. They are looking rather crazy. And I think I actually booked in with my hairdresser like two weeks ago. Did you? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Just because everybody, nobody will let me cut their hair anymore. (laughs) I I was having fun with cutting the boys' hair, and now they're like, "Could you please?" Could you please ask for Sophie back? And I was like, oh, I can do it. I've got the, I've got the shears. I can cut your hair. Nobody wants me to cut their hair anymore, basically. <laughs> I, I can do the boys, but they've both sort of got shaved heads, so I just use the dog clippers. Um, <laughs> but whenever I get them out, my two dogs run away and hide in a bush somewhere. But um, my hair, I need someone to tend the afro, and um, Maggie definitely needs something doing. But my hairdressers, you have to. Uh, wait for the big deadline and then they're going to open and then apparently fourth isn't it yeah they're opening on the 27th for me to uh book in you can imagine what it's going to be like it's going to be months till anyone gets it gets an appointment but um one meter distance rule now which basically means no no distance really doesn't it because nobody's been keeping apart from one another no i think that's um it is now just relatively normal It'll be interesting to see what it's like when restaurants kind of open again um, and other businesses. I mean, I haven't been shopping or anything yet because I don't really have a need for anything, but we'll see. You know, I've driven through towns as I've been quite busy, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Um, Mm. Need of Mm. going out. Yeah, I think it's just like I don't really feel like it at the moment. I don't mind seeing my friends, but I just don't know if I fancy sort of milling around town yet, you know. No, I live right in town. So I've been, I went into town yesterday to the chemist and um, it's just like normal. Even my eight-year-old was going, mummy, this is, this is just like a normal day. And we were still moving to one side and avoiding people and no one else was bothering. It was really, it was really very normal. Yeah. Well, I did, um, I did a, the march in Cobham actually on Saturday um yeah Black Lives Matter and actually it was really good there was a bit of social distancing in there as much as we can everybody had a mask on and uh it was really nice it was really peaceful it was really intelligent um two 16 year old girls set this up from um the American school they probably had a couple of hundred people there but it was quite well spaced out we ended up being marched through the high street of Cobham (laughs) Brilliant. Um, with some crusty old people on the side going, it's not just those lives that matter, you know? And I was just like, it you is. You are kidding. <laughs> You're kidding me. That's the point of this, you know, like, you know, everybody can do this if they want to, but it was funny. We had people sort of thrusting help for hero posters in my face and all that kind of stuff. I was like, yes, and they have their own things. So like, let this be the thing, you know? Um, oh, but we went, eventually ended up in this kind of, it's called Leg of Mutton Field, where we sort of got into this quite good social distancing circle of these couple hundred people and people were going in there just to share their experiences with racism. And then people were like, say like white people, I didn't say white people, black people, whatever, white people were getting in the middle, just saying, you know, how they hadn't really thought about it before. So it was really good because everybody was sort of getting their say with it and they just, it was great. And um, it was good to be part of something actually. So I just, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really positive thing. And I think it's very cool that it, it was two young girls from a school who arranged all of that. And I've actually seen, um, not just from you, but I've seen on Facebook for the local area, some really amazing clips and feedback from from Saturday. And I think it's so important for our kids um, because they will be the change. The other thing I think is very interesting and has been something that we've discussed a lot in our house is that my husband, who is 
obviously a very nice person, a very kind person, a very educated, considered and, you know, successful person who said to me, before I met you, I really didn't think that racism was still a thing in this country. Um, obviously, I'm a person of colour. My mum is black. My, you know, my grandparents were black and so on. But it, it is so interesting that it's sometimes hard to empathize because you may never have experienced anything like that. So I think it's important for me to make my kids understand that for some people, although they might not be directly ever feeling anything connected with racism, for some people that is their every day. For some people, yeah. they get up every day and they have to deal with the fallout of, of other people with small-minded or ignorant or they just don't know any better. Um, so it's a really positive thing. I, I would have liked to have gone with you but I couldn't unfortunately on Saturday but definitely I will at some point I think it's very positive I think it's a shame that some people are seeing it as a threat on themselves that it's time for someone to stand up for somebody else and say black lives matter has been taken as such a negative phrase yeah. um the black people aren't asking for more they're just asking for equal and I I think it's such a shame that it's been taken on so negatively but the good will out, I think, and um, hopefully these children that we're raising will, will be the difference. Yeah, uh, that was the nice thing to see about it, all the young people there, actually. Um, I say that on my birthday today, by the way. Oh, birthday. Happy birthday! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so all the young people um, were there, and it was just really nice to see them, you know, like, I mean, there were kids as young as seven talking in the middle, so it was it ranged no. from seven to 70, so it was really nice. Oh. Um, talking of inspirational people now, we have a very special yeah. guest today, don't we? We do. We have a lovely friend of yours, friend of Well Life Tribe, and his name is Nick Eid. He's a popular culture expert and PR. Hello, Nick. Hi, how are you? <laughs> very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Really good. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about doing this. Oh, it's really nice to see you. It's been a while, actually, since I've seen you. No, was it not? Did you not do your yeah, fashion, fashion show on your birthday? Yeah, yeah. But was that your birthday, though? Was it? I'm oh, sure yeah, we celebrated your birthday. I just invite you back for my birthday. I basically, I'm like, I come to all your birthday parties. <laughs> Even if I'm not invited, I'm still there. But a happy birthday, anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. I, that was like, the first one you ever did with me was probably about... 10 years ago actually. 10 years ago. That was so good. You were like, you were a bit of a pioneer in that, doing those brilliant charity events. And also, I always remember like the spec that you had was always really good. Like, you know, some people do charity fashion events and they're not particularly, but I knew because of your career kind of before, you were very much about making sure that everything looked perfect and was branded really well. And you made it- I'm <laughs> really better. stressed out. Always, yeah. And you're always stressed out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But you yourself do some really amazing things, and that's why I wanted you to come on and talk to us today. Oh, thank you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, what, what can I say? I basically, <laughs> as you know, so five years ago, I basically decided to sort of step away from more consumer stuff and really look at how I could do more purposeful PR and really kind of work with charities and businesses on creating more for their brands, but also looking at charities and making them into brands as well. Because, you know, and I think what you were just talking about with regards to at the moment, you know, COVID has, has shown a massive issue with regards to charities because, you know, we're raising 80 million to 100 million by the brilliant major, you know, cap captain, you know, doing that for NHS charities. But then there are these smaller charities, which are so important up and down the country, who receive nothing. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is the biggest problem with the UK and in many ways with charity. The people who shout loudest get it. But, Absolutely. And then you get this charity fatigue. So, you know, a local charity, you know, we work with people like Children in Need, which are massive. But then we work with Jeans for Jeans. We work with Pink Ribbon Foundation, Variety, with children's charity. And what they are finding is they're furloughing their staff but the demand is larger because kids are at home, they're in vulnerable families, they're not going to school, they're not having their one meal a day that they get at school. Yeah. And so there's going to be a huge backlog with everything, with health and everything after COVID, you know, and I think that generation is, there's going to be a lot of issues which, which kick in after that. So hopefully with what we're doing, we can educate people that, it's not just the NHS, which is yeah. paid for anyway with our taxes. Well, I was that, reading uh, something the other day about that. They were saying like the NHS got more in two weeks than they did in 10 years. 
and now yeah, they're more supported than ever, aren't they? On yeah, but the other thing about the NHS is NHS charities that doesn't go to a nurse that money. It goes to the environment, so they get split up that money up and down the country to NHS hospitals where they all decide, and it's sometimes it's about aesthetics, whether it's new paintings, whether it's painting a waiting room a different colour, getting new desks, where, you know, it's not about the immediate support. That's where I have a big issue because there are so many phone lines with like MIND and NSPCC yeah. and Stroke Association whose phone lines might cost maybe a hundred pounds a week, but that is vital for people. Whereas the money that the, the wonderful British public have given to the NHS charities together might just go to buying some new books for a, a children's ward, which is great, but it's not immediate help. Yeah, that right. kind of highlights the thing as well though, doesn't it? Like we were so on, everybody was so focused on the NHS that a lot of everything fell by the wayside. But that included people with different illnesses as well. They, that yeah. sort of, that didn't seem to matter for a bit. And of course, those people didn't show up because they were too scared to go to hospital. And so you had yeah. a whole load of things. So therefore, as well as the people being impacted because they were quite quiet, that then leads to all the charitable organisations feeling that, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, and also supporting people. And I think, you know, especially from a guy's point of view, you know, men's mental health has really sort of been affected during this time because you know what it's like. You've, you, most guys like to watch the football, go to the pub, hang out with their mates, have a bit of recreation time and kind of all those things have been sort of stripped away from most guys and that's a bit of a lifeline for them. And so that I think, you know, has caused a lot of issues. And even today, I mean, I'm not being, not getting all depressed about it, but even today, if you saw that uh, Steve Bing, who was Elizabeth Hurley's oh. boyfriend, you know, he was worth 580 million pounds, you know, on paper, yeah. there are people out there who would have gone, oh my God, his life was amazing. But he, you know, allegedly committed suicide because he just couldn't deal with the loneliness that he had. Because yeah. in America, especially Los Angeles, the lockdown is still going on. It's pretty full on there. It's like a police state. Yeah. And that's somebody who you would think on paper would be as happy as Larry. So you can't, yeah. you, nobody knows what people are feeling inside. No, they yeah. don't. Um, you know, and that is the problem at the moment. They did, I have watched a few things about loneliness and connection and a lot of people have who had to be on their own in, inside flats just by themselves not seeing anybody you know the impact of that is going to be really hard and so yeah, they do really need bad. these charities don't they definitely i think they need the charities they need people to talk to they need friends you know in our my block that i live in you know we've i've been here for three years i've not met a single neighbor until now and people have started to talk you know we've all you know as soon as covid kicked in we actually put notes through our doors, we met each other, you know, we, we started a Facebook group and that kind of support, fine, I've got my husband and my dog, but there are people who are on their own and they've never met a neighbor and now you can give them a bit of food or if they're ill, you can help them out. So I think, I think what's interesting about everything that's happened is that community has actually become a huge thing now. I mean, I, I know that you live in Cobham and it's a probably a little bit different, community's probably bigger there. In an inner city, you know, you don't know your neighbours and you could have lived here. I lived in, you know, in a flat for 10 years. I never met my neighbours. So, and that wasn't because I want, didn't want to. It's just because you never saw them. Yeah. So I think because of this, we've got community. We've got new friends. We've become a bit of a life support for people. I've got older friends who are 70 who I'll go and shop for that, you know, you wouldn't have thought twice about doing it. But now we're doing it. I think that mindfulness is really quite a special thing to have come out of this bad Oh God, yeah. The community sense is absolutely amazing. And I think it, it has happened in villages, actually, because we, we've set up a support group around here just to help vulnerable people or people living on their own. And they would never have got that before. You know, yeah. so that is a really brilliant thing. Um, and also what you were saying about the Black Lives Matter movement and what you were doing in your, there's your dog, <laughs> uh, it, what you were doing in, the, in that was really, really interesting because you know again i think the media have a huge part to play in their portrayal of that and they don't show what brilliant stuff other villages are doing they don't yeah. show that sort of education they don't show that people are standing up and saying actually i was ignorant i didn't you know these issues i'm my i'm from edinburgh my brother was up there and he said you know in in, our, in edinburgh they had a big protest but it was very peaceful everybody was socially distancing and it was fantastic because edinburgh is very very white and yeah. you know and i was brought up there and you know i know exactly what it's like and for 
it was great to hear that people up and down the country are showing solidarity and they're willing to be educate themselves and i think the media doesn't show enough of that at the moment well they don't want to see a peaceful process do they it's boring you know i I actually spoke about it in a press group and nobody wanted to flag it up because they're like oh it was good then (laughs) yeah (laughs) you didn't have any trouble then it's a shame listen we have we have this all the time with charities you know we have people that we talk to and this is i mean you know again you're very i love you so i'll be candid about it but you know we have when we talk about some people's illnesses yeah and we pitch it to the media the media will actually turn around and say to us we can't really see them being they don't look ill they don't look ill or it doesn't it won't make a good story because it just doesn't fit with Mm. the narrative you know and you're like they're going these are people who are suffering internally you know mentally and we want to highlight this in the media but because it doesn't fit with your narrative then we you are sidestepping it so i find that that sort of thing is really interesting and you know hopefully through what we do we can at least hopefully champion people who need that support in whatever way possible yeah nick what led you to do what you do now because obviously it comes from a really caring place and we often find that people who do that kind of compassionate work have had their own sort of story yeah you know i've i've talked about this a lot and i've written about it because it was very quite unique basically my when i was 23 my mum passed away from a stroke but she passed she died in front of me uh it was on the day that prince diana died so the world it wasn't just obviously we had you know it was the worst day of my life but it also was very strange because the world was unhappy so you couldn't you everywhere you looked there was grief every magazine every newspaper every tv you know it was it was very very bizarre and it was such a strange experience because you felt like you couldn't really grieve yourself because there are people like all around you kind of crying and then i remember being on the tube and uh, somebody said to me oh it's really affected you and you're like no that's i'm not crying because of her i'm crying because of my own grief and but then weirdly vicariously i lived my life a bit through her and through the boys because it's a weird unique bond that you've kind of got in this very messed up way but what it taught me was at that age you know i hadn't come out i was you know just moved to london starting my sort of life and so having that sort of impact on you when there were lots of things going on was you know really did impact me in a big way and i suppose what it taught me was what bad things really are you know from a really from that age i knew what kind of shit was and i i knew what you know my friends would turn around and go oh i'm really sad today and you're like no you're not sad i know what sadness is and i can work that out and so this isn't sadness and that kind of kept me kind of going really that sort of understanding and i suppose i matured very quickly uh because i had to i've got had an old my father was much older than my mum, and my brother me and my brother adopted and we weren't very close when my mum passed away we got closer i had a you know a very bad breakdown i left london had to be put into a home was given you know help psychiatric and you know i do say my brother and my dad did sort of save my life and then one day i basically i came down to london just after eight months to see a friend and she was moving out of her flat and she said, oh, I'm moving out next week. And I thought, and I felt like, I know it sounds really silly and spiritual, but I felt like this air come over me. And I was like, right, I'm gonna move. I, I'm gonna move here. Had no job, had to build my life again. And I'd never lived on my own. And I was like, actually something, my mom is saying, come on, forget wallowing, forget depression, forget being a victim, just yeah. start your life. And I, and I, in that split second, I could have said no and gone back on the train and been sad again. But I was like, no. So I did it. I, I came the next day, I packed my bags and came back down. I said, I'm going to get a deposit. So I had to save some money up for my inheritance and thought, right, there we go. I moved into that flat. And then I was really angry that I didn't know what stroke was. You know, we knew, you know, we'd been educated on everything from leukemia, HIV, you know, cancers at school, but never brain hemorrhages or anything like that so I had no idea what it was so I contacted the stroke association to ask them and if I could help and I kind of like they were helpful but not particularly and I just again at that moment I was like right I'm gonna I want to educate young people what stroke is and do something fun so I put on a party and it was crazy I actually doorstop Patsy Palmer I doorstop Jamie Oliver was coming out (laughs) of a restaurant and I ran into his car 
<laughs> and said, I read about your family and you've got a story with stroke. And he was like, yes. And I said to him, I'm putting on a party in two weeks time. Will you come? And he went, yeah, I'll come. And he came with his wife and Patsy Palmer bought all the EastEnders lot. And I suddenly put on this big party and we were in OK Magazine. And I was like, wow, OK, I've got a bit of purpose here. And this is fun, but it's also fundraising and it's also awareness driving. And then I did that for like 20 years. And I, oh, was it 20 everybody, years? 20 years, everybody from Kylie, Robbie Williams. I mean, everybody came to, it was called A Night With Nick. And not in an egotistical way, just quite like the name. <laughs> uh, and the alliteration was fab. And it was fantastic. You know, we did so much. And then I basically decided to work in, you know, I love fashion, Pat, as you know. And yeah. I'd done, I, luckily I got to be the head judge on Project Runway. To be honest, as a kind of like, I don't know how I got it, but I got it. And it was fantastic. And I love fashion. So I got in touch with Boohoo and we created Style for Stroke. And now... Style for Stroke is actually a standalone foundation. We raise money for the Stroke Association and Interact Stroke. And this year, which is really exciting, we do t-shirts, but this year I've managed to get the team at Burberry to, you're, this is an exclusive, to be our designers, to produce the patterns. So I'm really excited. Really I think cool, it's isn't it? Yeah. So I'm really, because before we'd be doing slogans, but this is going to be really interesting to see what we come up with and create a really fashionable t-shirt that raises awareness and has you know a lot of passion behind it sorry i'm talking a lot no no thing i think like what your mum you know i mean all of this has come about and you have raised so much awareness i mean i actually haven't had anybody in my family who've had a stroke but what are the statistics in the uk around it Every four minutes, somebody has a stroke in the UK. Stroke is the biggest cause of disability in the world. There are, you know, people under, under 50, you know, it's not so large, but, you know, people like um, Amelia Clark. Mm. Oh, God, yes. So, you know, people like Amelia Clark who had a stroke, you know, she's got a charity called Same You, which is all about cerebral hemorrhages. So for her to talk about it is great. Jessie J had a stroke when she was 18. Sharon Stone had a stroke when she was 50. You know, the reason why people don't talk about stroke, and I find it very frustrating, is that stroke isn't sexy. So it's not, you know, things like breast cancer and HIV, you know, you've got people like Elton John with all these stars making massive fundraisers. Whereas when it comes to stroke, it's not seen as anything that's sexy. So I always said to myself, right, I'm going to make it into a brand so that people go, okay. And so what I have done is I've done a lot with Alexandra Burke, the singer, because yeah. her mum died of a stroke. So she has her own foundation, the Melissa Bell Foundation. So the two of us put on a, a big event every year now. It's our second one was last year called the Four Ball. And we had like Nicole Scherzinger perform and, you know, the stars in the West End and Alexandra. And, you know, again, it's about that passion, about raising money and awareness. And actually in the BAME community, stroke is... Uh, a much larger proportion due to physiology, diet, and other factors as well. Mm. well that's really scary, actually, isn't it? Every four minutes. I mean, people yeah, exactly. And people don't think that. And you know, I think it's it's an interesting statistic. And you know, it's it, heart disease is the biggest cause of death, and then it's stroke. Um, and the problem with stroke is that a lot of it can't be detected. So, you know, people have an aneurysm, which my mum had a thing called a subarachnoid aneurysm, which means that um, you're kind of born with it. It's a time bomb. So you could have been driving in a car and you have it. You could have been, I mean, I've just heard very, unfortunately, I used to share an office with a wonderful company called John Doe. And one of the girls there, Billy, she was 22 and she had one and she's, yeah. she passed away. Oh, so it's very, very sad. And, you know, people who have stroke, the rehabilitation is really difficult. You lose, you have a thing called aphasia, which is where you can't articulate. So mm. you can say, I love you, but you can't. And then uh, Interact Stroke, which is a charity that we support, they send actors into stroke units to really help with people who've suffered from stroke to articulate, to listen to things. They might read a love letter. And instead of reading it in the way that you and I are talking, they do it in an accent or a voice or have a conversation. So that stimulates the brain and, and gives the stroke survivor, some stimulus, which hopefully will help them cognitively as they, you know, recover. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's really likely that somebody who listens to this has had that because of, yeah. you know, um, talking about you um, for a minute, 
just going back to your past, you sort of touched on religion a bit when we mm. gave you the question sheet. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, like, I mean, you know, I was, I used to be very religious. When I was at school, I went to a, a private school in Edinburgh and I was really into, as a head of Scripture Union, I was, religion was extremely important to me. And then basically when I was, oh, I was 16, my parents told me that me and my brother was, were adopted. And that's quite late, you know, 16 is, is, is pretty late. And, you know, with hindsight, I think even my dad, you know, would have, and my mom probably would have said it was, was too late. But anyway, that's when they did it. That's when they decided. So it made me lose my faith in God because I thought that God would have told me. Right. And it, so, I, you know, if, you, if I had felt that if I was devoting all that time and energy to him, then why hadn't he indicated that this was, was the case? Yeah. And so what it did was it, it, it did create, you know, a big identity issue. You know, when you suddenly you're told that your mum's not your mum, your dad's not your dad, your brother's not your brother, you know, you, you're like, wow, that is all this is actually not real or it is real because they love you and they are your family, mm. but it does cause, it just causes a lot of confusion. And for me, it made me, it made me, quite wary of people even my parents it made me wary of because I was like if you can not lie because it's not a lie but if you can't tell me tell you at that age do you know I think they were I mean to be honest they're really posh really really you know from a very different generation you know they were much older than me and my brother we were kind of like late children adoption in those days was kind of not really something that people would really talk about Jeremy and I was fostered, my brother was adopted. I think it was just something that really wasn't kind of talked about. And I remember when I told people at school, they all thought I was lying. So that made it even worse. Because they'd be like, why are you lying about that? Why were you lying about that you're adopted? And you'd be like, well, why would I lie that I am adopted? And the thing was, I look really like my mum and my brother looks really like my dad, which is just the way of the world. And then my parents were taken into school, where they had to go and have a meeting with all the parents and sort of explain that we were adopted because I had been going around going, well, I don't know, my dad could be an Indian prince for all I know, you know, kind of like yeah, trying to find my own reality and trying to yeah. find my own, trying to build my own kind of like family tree because I hadn't got one. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I could be anybody because this is how it went, you know, and I'm theatrical. So that was my kind of, uh, <laughs> my, who I mean, most people probably say, yeah, the guy down the road, I'm like, it would be a Maharaja. Do you know what I mean? Like, why? <laughs> but that's just me. Why not? <laughs> uh, why not? Exactly. How, why not? Uh, and I'll tell you why, actually, because my father was a very well-known scientist and we lived in India for quite a while. And we lived in Rajasthan and I loved all the culture. And actually over there, obviously, there are millions of gods and it's, a lot of it is about children being stolen. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different yeah. world. So uh, culturally, I think I quite liked it. And so I think that when I was told and then suddenly brought in all this Indian stuff, I kind of decided that I was the son of a Maharaja. So <laughs> my parents had to go into school, explain that we were adopted, that I wasn't the son of a Maharaja, but <laughs> they weren't my parents. And uh, yeah, a bit crazy. <laughs> Did you ever do anything That's... to look for your real parents or you decided to To leave? be honest. To be honest, my parents were my parents. My mum yeah. was my mum. And I, my, actually, Andy, my husband and I, about three months ago, just before lockdown, we did do Ancestry because I wanted to know about my, I wanted to know where, what, where I was from. And so basically I'm like 30% French, 20% Spanish, 10%, I'm like a, a, a Euro, I'm basically Brexit. So, uh, <laughs> and then there's a lot of, and then a bit of, and then hardly any Scottish and hardly any English, weirdly. So, and you're a bit funny like enough, me, really, aren't you? Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. We're all we're all hybrids, but we're fabulous. Uh, and and so that that was the only thing. But you know, as far as that went, I wouldn't go and find no. a family member. I don't need to. I've got my family, and that's all that matters. And you were very close to your mum, weren't you? Yeah, very, very, very close, you know, I, you know, and the impact of that will never leave me. And it hits me every day. Like I grieve every day. Like I, I, I know it sounds, some people might, oh, well, you, you can get over these things. And some people do in their own way. But for me, it's, it's a constant, a constant reminder. But you know what, Kat, it's a constant, it's a constant grounder. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I lost my mum recently, like a year ago. Um, and I completely get you. And it, it, it being my birthday today. Yeah. I'm like, cool. yeah, it's really cool. But then a huge part of me is just like, it's not really the same. And I don't yeah, and I think regrets as well. I think regret, I mean, my dad passed away two years ago and he was 94. And yeah. for oh, me, wow. you know, I miss him a lot. But I also said to, to my brother, with COVID and everything, I'm glad that he's not here because it would have been awful if he had passed away and yeah. we wouldn't be able to see him. I feel people who have gone through that, I just can't fathom it. And I think for my mum, the, the reason I'd like to, my mum to have been alive, you know, now is because I'd love her to have met my husband. Yeah. And I yeah. would love to have been able to take her to LA or to the yeah. opera in, you know, Vienna. You know, I'd love to have done all the things she did to me. For me, I would have loved to have given back. But then they're in your heart, aren't they? So they, mm. they're in your heart, your spirit and your soul. So that's kind of where they are. And I think it's yeah. so nice that she's still your biggest inspiration. Yeah. Through everything. Yeah. Welcome to One Size Does Not Fit All with Well Life Tribe. We're sponsored by Renourish. Renourish are delicious grab-and-go fresh soups in a pioneering, heatable, fully recyclable bottle. Renourish soups are plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, and packed with vitamins. Find them in all Waitrose stores. You talk about your struggles as well. I mean, obviously you've told us about your early part struggles. What struggles do you think you face do you still face any now or? yeah i have i have a lot of demons and they're they are they are they rear their head honestly like every few days and they're whether it's food whether it's alcohol never never drugs never been something and i'll tell you the reason why no drugs because my ex-boyfriend he hung himself actually and he was a heroin addict <laughs> so i kind of know i know what they can do and i saw the ugly side of them and that's, that shows another side of depression and stuff. But I've always been, I'm very extremely positive. I was born happy. So when I wake up, like the world's amazing. And then suddenly things kind of like stop that. And I kind of can get a little bit bogged down by it. And I'm kind of, I'm very, you know, I, funny enough, you, you know we're talking about this later, but uh, I, you know, imposter syndrome has been something which I've suffered from a lot because you never think that you're worthy enough or that you're worth mm. what you're doing. So even with having a business and having a husband and, you know, I, I, there's, all, there's a little demon in that back of my head saying, you shouldn't be here. This is not for you. You shouldn't be in the press or you shouldn't be on GMB or you shouldn't be writing this. And that demon is, I cannot get away. I cannot get rid of it. And I've tried and now I live with it and I manage it and yeah. I accept it and I, I don't embrace it because you shouldn't and I don't believe I should embrace it, but I understand it. And like, I, like we've just said about that kind of like reality check, I see it as maybe potentially that's kind of a reality check for me, yeah. but it's hard to manage. That, where do you think it comes from? Why do you feel that way? I don't do you think that's you like know, I, childhood or loss? I think or? it's childhood. I think, listen, like, you know, as we just said, if you're adopted and you find out, I think it's about identity. Mm. I think it's about that. You know, I, I, I think, yeah, I think very much it's about identity. Right. It's about finding out who you really are, having a voice, finding purpose, and then having that maybe pulled away from you and then right. kind of rebuilding. And I've been very much like that. I'm a very, I've forged my own destiny. I've never mm -hmm. really had my hand held by anybody and that I don't want that hand held. But you know, I know lots of people who are in my industry, in the entertainment industry or in PR or brand that had lots and lots of sort of help, whether it's family or financial or support. Whereas I've, you know, I've made snap decisions which have been, you know, big ones, whether it's, you know, five years ago I had a brilliant business and I decided to step right away from it and start back again because it wasn't purposeful and I knew I was doing the right thing but it was a huge shift mm. when I want when I wanted to do television you know I was 30 and I wanted to be on tv and I was like right I'm gonna do it and I went and I gave up my job I gave up my boyfriend and I went and started as a runner at shine and was on 30 pounds a week rather than 60,000 a year you know what I mean I was and I gave up everything 
and I did the right thing and I got my career I wanted and I achieved what I wanted to do. And I still, luckily, I'm still doing broadcast stuff, which I like. But, you know, I've never, I've never, I suppose I've never been given the help. I've always helped others, but that's maybe my thing. But that's I'm more capable. That you took that risk thing for yourself mm. and it paid off because you believed in yourself. So you do have that in you, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do believe. Okay. Yeah, I do. But I had to do that. Nobody was going to help me. And everybody who around me was like, you're just being an absolute, why would you do that? But I knew in my heart that I wanted to communicate. And I knew in my heart also that if I was on television, it meant that people would know who I was. And in theory, that would mean that I could get a venue for free and sponsorship for my charity events. And more stuff would happen off the back of that. I could do more good. And that's happened. You know, everything that I do is very holistic in the fact that it... And it comes back we, to your purpose, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not greedy. If I was greedy, cat, I would have gone on Big Brother. Do you know what I mean? I would have yeah. gone that way. But I wanted to have credibility and integrity and I wanted to just use that platform to do good. And now, you know, I'm in a position to hopefully do that. I think that's amazing to always make those choices from that point, from the point of wanting to make a difference. Um, there are so many people who, I know they always talk about, you know, what would you, can you look back at the end of your life and say, did I do what I wanted to do? And what an amazing thing to be able to look back and say, yeah, I followed my heart and, and, I, and I was making a difference because clearly that's what you're doing. Um, and that's incredible this far, you know, you could say that now, which is amazing to be able to give yeah. give all the stuff up just to do the right thing. Not many people do that. No, well, I know, but you know, I think of, I, I, as I said, I always say this to my friends. But as when I from an early age, I learned that it's you know philanthropy in its kind of form is not about writing a check; it's about holding a hand. And if you can hold the hand of somebody and just guide them into a different way you know and, and you know this is this your podcast is predominantly about women and your wonderful empowering women the two of you and as they say you educate a woman and 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 give uh, in different environments and give them those tools then they can really take them and power them and so when we you know people that we work with and I've kind of come into great um friendships with the people like Eva Longoria who is a fantastic Mm. actress but also an amazing activist who I, oh, I remember love. seeing pictures with her actually yeah we're good friends you know and she's amazing and the reason why I love her is because she really is an activist and she's an educator and she was somebody you know this her story is amazing when she was a you know Latina actress struggling actress and promo girl she was going for all these different jobs but she realized that in the hospitals in LA there was a lot of Latina speaking women who'd come over from Mexico who were maids or service staff who were being misdiagnosed or diagnosed with various different um, ailments but because they couldn't speak Spanish the doctors and they couldn't the Spaniards couldn't understand they were being misdiagnosed and or they had no information so Eva and the two of her Latina friends Alina and Maria they used to go to the hospitals every weekend and translate Amazing. and so enable the families to understand that their child might have leukemia or yeah. their mother has got had a stroke or whatever and so they did that from an early age and then Eva got her audition for Desperate Housewives got the show nobody knew how big it was going to become and she said to her friend she said look whatever we do let's always give back and let's do what we can do to help women empower them because once they you know they've got that knowledge they can empower others and so I've kind of hearing her as well as we become friends is a fantastic thing and there's a you know I, lo I love that and and to be honest I tell you somebody else who's good at that is Victoria Beckham she does a lot for um UNICEF but also for Mothers to Mothers which is an HIV charity and what they do is again it's about education and they teach women who potentially have got HIV but they teach them how to take the drugs and how to educate other women how obviously safe sex but also how to take precautions when their children then won't be born with HIV so it's you know I love all that it makes me excite yeah. excite me but it, it empowers me and it, it, it I, I like to be able to support and help no it's yeah. brilliant and I think what I'm kind of getting from this as well because of going back to your adoption and all the things that you've done you know since all of that as well I 
I feel like listening to you talk about it, that's a really big help for people who are younger. Um, yeah. You know, who perhaps struggling with identity as well. Perhaps, you know, not, maybe they've been told at a, you know, a later age. I mean, you know, and as well, um, adoption rates have gone up higher and higher, haven't they? Um, yeah, yeah. But you're going to be faced with a lot of children who have a similar path to you on that. So I think definitely I think so that I think and I think uh sexuality as well yeah. you know I think you know that is you know again it's fear you know coming out and you know all of, you know I think I think there's still a lot of fear there for, for young people and I think there's still you know I worked in media obviously and that's how I met you originally yeah so sexuality wasn't really a thing because it was all always mixed in media yeah liberty worked at BA and you had the same experience really didn't you yeah, it was just, it was just, that was just life. Warm. Yeah. But, a lot but then in most environments, it's not like, you know, you no. find it, you know, it's crazy. No. Yeah. I mean, we, struggle you know, with we coming out as well then. Yes, really struggled. And as I said, I didn't, you know, I regret that I never told my mom, you know, I regret that my dad, when I told my dad, my dad just didn't mind. He was like, look, just as long as you're happy, you've been through enough anyway. So <laughs> just as long as you're happy and the person you love is, loves you back. So he was actually quite easy. And my brother was very, I think, I think everybody has that fear. They have that fear of rejection. And I think, yeah. you know, it's very interesting. Society makes it hard, doesn't it? 100% it makes it hard. And I think, you know, nowadays as well, like I have, you know, this is quite controversial to say, but I still have, Although I'm quite flamboyant and camp, I, I believe that sexuality is who you love, who you go to, to bed with and who you wake up with and who you marry or who you spend your life with. I don't see it as something that will be something that is a stake in the ground for my life. So I've never been to a pride march, not because I have not wanted to, uh, not because I haven't not wanted to, just because I just don't, it's not, I, sexuality and being gay is just who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't wanted to march about it. Uh, I'm more likely to go and march at a BLM march than I would actually for Pride. Just the, and, and I think sometimes that when you do see shows on TV like uh, Drag Race, etc., that they still perpetuate a vision for people who are quite close-minded, that that is what a gay person is like. Right, And yeah. I sometimes feel a little bit upset when you see that because and I, I love the popularity of it and I think it's absolutely brilliant but I think there's a flip side that is creating another stereotype mm -hmm. and I'm like there are lots and lots of fantastic people who happen to have a same-sex partner and that's it yeah you know there's nothing more nothing less that's and that's kind of how I want you know how I like it really well, that yeah. comes into that all lives matter thing, doesn't it, really? Like, yes. in, on the same kind of tunage that we're all the same, do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. Everybody yeah. needs to sort of have their voice and kind of go, yeah. look, I can be what I want to be. And I think that's probably why that happens, isn't it? You know, like... Of course, and with, with Pride especially. But, you know, it's Pride especially. I think it's absolutely brilliant. But I think, you know, overtly, yeah. I think... The, you know, the middle, middle England still thinks that is what a, that, yeah. if you said, what's a gay person, they go, that's a gay person, rather than maybe their cousin, who yeah. they go to football with. They can't believe that there's a footballer who could be gay, because they're right. not running around with it, you know what I mean? And I think, yeah. that, from an education point of view, it's really important. So and I think, I think, you know, I feel sorry for people in sports who can't come out, because mm -hmm. listen, Statistically, there has to be lots of people who are gay in rugby and in, you know, you know, people like Gareth Thomas, though, I think are absolutely brilliant, who have, you know, come out and they've yeah. talked about it openly. I think it's brilliant. And I think, you know, I think the stuff that's happened with Black Lives Matter, just, you know, touching on it, because I've got a lot of friends who are black, and I, and I think it, this is so important. And I think it is so important to be like, we need to educate ourselves. We have to really sit down and learn about exactly what's happened so when you do see statues coming down i mean listen sorry i'm going off on a tangent but i think the, the last few months for all of us this is like the history books this is a this yeah. is like the craziest history book ever you know yeah. this is going to be learned about for centuries as yeah. to uprisings trump and COVID, the Great Plague, like this is crazy well, that we are living in. down and everything, all of that's going to be documented, isn't it? Oh my God, it's just insane. 
The funny thing with that is my kids seem to think that this has happened before. So they're like, what did you do last time when you were in lockdown? And I'm like, this Oh, oh my God. <laughs> and back on your point about sexuality, we woke up this morning, my daughter came and she's eight and she was looking on my phone and she was looking at my, my Instagram and she saw Lizzo, the, um, the singer. Yeah. And she was looking at pictures of her and she said, can I marry Lizzo? And I said, yeah, oh. of course you can. And I she think said, we all want to marry Lizzo, to be honest. <laughs> and she, and um, she said, can I marry a girl? And I said, of course you can marry a girl. You can marry a girl and you can marry a boy. And she goes, oh, no, no, I know that. She goes, I mean, am I old enough? And I said, oh. you're probably a bit young, but you'd have to actually, she'd probably have to want to marry you too. And I just thought it was funny that I was thinking she meant, can I marry a girl? But she actually meant, am I old enough to marry a girl? That's Doesn't so matter cute. if it's a girl or a boy, she just wants to marry Lizzo, so. Um, she's been raised correctly, though. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> and as a role model, someone like Lizzo is absolutely brilliant. She's amazing, isn't she? Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I yesterday was talking my dad who I hadn't seen since last year August came to stay for the weekend um yesterday we were talking about a cousin who was gay actually and he was like oh you know your auntie was really funny about that when it first happened and I was like yeah I said but it's different now is it because if my two kids said it they, they know they can say it because we talk about it freely all the time you know I was trying to explain to him yeah now, I was like yeah but that's her generation as this generation of my friends that I know would pretty much you know it's normal it's okay everything yeah about it but for him he was like well, yeah no i guess i get that i guess but you were we weren't allowed to be like that before you know it's so restricted so it was interesting that we talked about that yesterday because he was just yeah. like so if max so he was trying to if max came in i was like i don't care you know i honestly just as long as they're happy yeah but it's like what you go back to it's about like who you fall in love with isn't it yeah Totally. There's actually, there's a really interesting, I watched it fairly recently, but uh, there's a documentary on, on, I think it's on Netflix, about Aaron Hernandez, who was a... Oh, yes, uh, yeah. Did you watch that? Yeah. He was an American football player. Mm. And the, basically, the underlying thing was that they believe he was homosexual and he was trying to cover that it. up. And mm. it just led, led him to just lose it completely. But I mean, the people who came forward and said, yeah, I had a relationship with him, and even some who didn't, who were just saying, look, I am now an out gay American footballer, mm. but that's okay-ish now. But back in the day, I had to lie to everyone. I was not allowed to be out here and be gay. But the whole thing was just, you know, it's this kind, it's this culture that we just have to blow open. It's okay for everybody to be. Yeah, and you However, can still play football. You can still play football or play rugby with a group of lads and not worry, you know, like, it's just like, come on, like, get a grip. That's, it's a sport, it's a game. I do, like, I do think it's interesting that still nobody's come out in the, in the Premiership, but I think that that might change in the next few years. And I think that'll be, you know, my, my big thing is, you know, the, one of the things I hate about the media is there are publications that try and bully people into coming out, etc., and that that is not acceptable in any shape or form. Yeah. And I think it's, it's up to that person whether they want to do it, whether they're retired or they just feel they should, rather than being bullied by a, a media person to do so. It's terrible. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's awful. It really is. And mm. I think you know, like I think the more people just keep, like you're saying, it's just it's love, isn't it? At the end of the day, love. Exactly. Yeah. All we need is love. Yeah. And I just think, so what things have you got coming up? What's, what's coming up for you? Well, you know what I'm like. Um, I have a podcast, which is called Imposter Syndrome, Ooh, which is, uh, yeah, which is coming up uh, on the 2nd of July. And that I've interviewed some people like Andrew McLean and uh, Matt Richardson, the comedian, Gail Porter and Camilla Dallarat from Strictly, and a few others. And basically talking about imposter syndrome and how that's affected them in the public eye. And obviously, We've talked about this before, that's a demon in your ear. So yeah. doing that, and then we're looking at doing a Star for Stroke collection, which will come out in August time. So that will be a new collection of T-shirts, which will raise money for Stroke Association and for Interact Stroke. And I'm writing, at the moment, I'm writing a, a rather fun television show, which is taking up most of my time, Kat. You're <laughs> going to love it. Oh, Absolutely wow. love it. You it's all about celebrity. 
I can't say too much about it, but it's really fun. And it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of what, it's about popular culture, but in a really different way. And hopefully again, it's a nice way of educating people that really popular culture has never changed. You know, from Egyptian times, Cleopatra, she was branding and she had followers and she, there was fake news to now, you know, Kylie Jenner or Kim Kardashian. You know, nothing has really changed. No, but you they know. say that for the story of Jesus as well, don't they? Well, well there you go. Yeah, you and all this stuff. <laughs> exactly. So, well, yes, it is PR. It's fake news. So, uh, yeah, watch the, this space for that. We're just working. We're just finishing that off. I've been writing a bit, so it's been quite good. And actually, lockdown's been great for that. Yeah, I bet it has. And have you managed I, okay in lockdown, or did you find it a struggle? I found it hard for the first. Uh, listen, I grieved. You know what? I did grieve. I grieved my business because we lost, you know, 90% of our business we lost very quickly because we do events. Summer for us is big because we have venues in Ibiza. Charities, we were the first to go for the, as a retainer from a PR point of view, you know. So it was a very, very, it has been very difficult. But, you know, I'm a hustler and I just kind of get up and brush myself off and try and see what I can do. I think it'll be a very interesting new world, but hopefully we will survive. Touch wood, fingers crossed. Uh, Relationship-wise, I think it's been difficult, but it's been, we love each other, me and my husband. We have, we've got a brand new sofa, which I'm on, which luckily came the day before lockdown. And it's got a big double bed in it. So I, we call it Hotel uh, Shoreditch. So uh, when either, uh, where we, some of us want to stay in the hotel on our own. Other times we want a bit of together. But it's like being in another place and we make it all glam. We do our own room service. And that's kind of going in a one bedroom flat and short it uh, and now I'm just like you know ready to go and and uh start and I and listen my neighbor luckily has been in lockdown as a hairdresser and hasn't <gasps> met somebody for years so I managed to get myself a little cheeky haircut yesterday girls I want to come to Hotel Shoreditch <laughs> so next time you're in London please come to Hotel Shoreditch I'll make sure you have the cocktails Oh, I do love that you, even in the face of all these things, you're still coming out, you've still got things. To, I love the fact that you just keep going. You're a dear. It's so inspiring. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. You're amazing. You um, really do rally. And I think the thing that sort of stands out most about you is that your passion and you're, you're powered by love. Everything you do seems yeah. to sort of come from oh, yeah, a really nice. true place. And that's... It is. It's that's, important. Like you can't... Your love is... If you love something then nothing can kind of stop you. No. Yeah. I don't think anything will stop you. I think you'll keep going. No, I don't think it will. Fabulous things. Look at, the, look at the dog. You've got to see the dog. She's fast asleep. There she is. Oh. You see her? Oh. <laughs> look, she's wearing the cat. You'll love this. She's wearing Versace. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. on. Now. Have you? Oh, I love them. Oh, I love that. Um, it's been so nice talking to you, Nick. Um, oh, thank you. I think a lot of people will get, you know, so much out of listening to this conversation with you. Um, where can they find you? They can find me at, at Nick Eid on Instagram and then uh, Imposter Syndrome is going to be on Spotify and on Apple. So wherever you That's find From July, it. isn't it? July, yeah. Thank you so much, girls. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And we'll speak, we will look forward to your new podcast coming soon. And yeah, we'll speak to you soon. No. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.